It is good to see you, church. And it is good to read Scripture. The Bible says that we should commit ourselves to the public reading of Scripture. So when we have a big passage like that, and thank you, Kylie, for for reading, it is for our souls. Uh, So... uh, my name is David Lawrence, one of the pastors here, uh, regularly preaching. Uh, if, um, if you don't know me, please come up and, and catch me after the service. I'd love to talk with you. Listen, when an important public figure dies, we usually feel the shock of such a loss. We look at their lives, what made them a, the public people that they are, we or were. We consider their words, their way of living, maybe even their way of dying. Tim Keller was a pastor for more than 40 years, including the time at Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City, which grew from just a handful of people in 1989 to over 5,000 members before he died. In 2005, he co-founded a group called the Gospel Coalition, which connects thousands of like-minded, gospel-centered churches worldwide, just like this one. After almost three years of battling cancer, Tim Keller died in May of this year at age 72. One colleague said, Tim Keller was a once-in-a-century sort of person. He will be remembered among this generation's most effective pastors defenders of the faith, and evangelists. Tim not only made the most effective arguments for the Christian faith, he also demonstrated the faith with a humble and gracious spirit and a passion to see the lost come to know the Lord that he so loved. Keller himself said, the way I handle my fast approaching death is by fighting my sin and getting deeper in communion with God. That's how John Owen dealt with his imminent death, and that's, how, or that's what I'm trying to do too, he says. Tim, he was a man who had, in Owen's words, a holy amazement with the steadfast love and faithfulness of God. He was a man of faith. Much like Abraham, whose life we've been studying up to this point, from Genesis chapter 12 to 23, and now we're on 24 and a little bit of 25. We've watched Abraham's faith grow through these 60-plus years that he's been in Canaan. Now that Sarah's dead and, and he is old, Abraham looks to provide a wife for his son, Isaac, the son that God said, would inherit his promise and his blessing. Now, by this time, we know from uh, chapter 25, verse 20, that Isaac is 40 years old. He's single. And the women around Canaan have proven not to be the kind that Abraham's willing to give his son to marry. Isaac's future wife would have to come from somewhere else. And that's the setting that we find ourselves in chapter 24. Now, the main idea that I want you to come away with today is trust God's covenant.
kindness and be willing to follow him to the very end. We see that in Abraham, don't we? And we're going to focus on three things. Two of these, trust God's kindness and then follow him willingly are each. Those are seen in all five of the main characters in this story. And for the third, we'll see how Abraham specifically does this to the end. Now Moses, the author of Genesis, begins the story describing Abraham as very old and blessed by God in every way. God had promised Abraham offspring and land. But at this point in Abraham's long life, he only has Isaac as the offspring of promise and a burial site in Hebron. So Abraham uh, moves to action. He's, he's not going to trust in himself or in his own grand plans. First, in verse 3, we see that he calls his senior servant and puts him under an oath. That is a firm vow. Now, put your hand under my thigh. That's, he's saying, be submitted to this oath. And he says it's by the Lord, the God of heaven and earth. You know, though he, he gives this task to his most trusted servant, he does not leave success to chance. Nor does he leave it to his servant's will. He places the man under an oath to God, the God of heaven and earth. And secondly, in verse 7, he makes clear that Abraham trusts the, in God to be faithful to his promise. This, this is the oath that God spoke to him and made his own promise with an oath. Now Abraham and the servant agree. Now both Abraham and the servant are trusting in God's kindness. Now the servant we, we read about the servant trusting God because of the kindness to his master Abraham. Three times he says so in this passage. And he uses this unique word to describe God's character toward Abraham. It's, it's this Hebrew word, chesed. Chesed. Six times this word appears in Genesis to describe God's character, and three of those times are right here in our passage. In verse 12, verse 14, and verse 27. In our text, it's translated here as kindness. Now, there's really no English word that captures or fully expresses what hesed is. I mean, how can we as humans describe a love like God's? It's so unique, so unlike any other. In our Bibles, the word is, often appears as kindness or faithfulness or mercy or steadfast love. Hesed it, it implies loving not merely as a feeling, but in acts of love and service that are, that are owed to another because of a covenant relationship. 
covenant relationship. Chesed is expressed by God to us. Chesed is called for the church to express to one another. We are to share chesed with one another in the church. Now God's chesed for Abraham is is what the servant is trusting in there in 12 and 14 to make his mission successful in finding a wife for Isaac. And it's what he praises God for in verse 27. Do you see that? When Rebekah actually does appear to be the answer to his prayer. Another place where it shows up, actually, is verse 49. If you look at verse 49, the servant asks Laban and Bethuel to show kindness, chesed, to Abraham, letting him return successfully with this bride for Isaac. It's a a call to them, or for them, to also trust God's faithfulness. And they do. You see it there in verse, in verse 50, the way they respond to, uh, to this call. Verse 50, saying, this is from the Lord. What can we say? Or can we, say, we can say nothing to you one way or the other. Here is Rebecca. Take her and, and go. And let her become the wife of your master's son as the Lord has directed. Though, though Rebecca's, now let's look at Rebecca. Though Rebecca's trust is not as clear as Abraham's or the servant's in, in putting this together, she also must trust God and God's kindness. Like, like Abraham all the way back in chapter 12, Think, think back to that. When God calls Abraham, she also must leave her country and her people and her father's household, going to a land that she knows nothing about. And all this on a word from a man she just met the day before at the well. No pictures of Isaac. Is he good looking? I don't know. No surety of her future. Sure, there are 10 camels loaded, but no idea what this new country would be like, the food that she'd eat, the women that she would meet there. She'd have to trust God and how kind God was in her step of faith. Many of you have made steps of faith like that too. You didn't know where you were coming or what you were getting into. You didn't know what would be here in Erbil. Trust God. Look at Isaac. Isaac too must trust in God's kindness. I mean, think about it. Would Abraham's servant find a woman of noble character? A woman who could, he could love? Beauty unseen, character unknown? But in God's kindness, we see there in verse 16, not only is Rebecca very beautiful, she's also to be, she's also proven to be a woman of character, of purity, of hospitality, and a hardworking 
woman. I, I, we read this in, in our home group. We got the verses 63 to 67. It really feels like it reads like a romance. Isaac and Rebekah both look up. Their eyes meet. Isaac hears the whole story from the servant. Clearly, the Lord has been kind. Clearly. Isaac brings his new wife home and and he loves her. He loves her. Her presence actually brings him comfort after his mother's death. So friends, I want to ask, are, are you trusting God's kindness? Consider this man, Abraham. He trusted God's command when he did not know where such faith would lead him. He trusted God's promise, even when he wasn't receiving in the timing that he wanted what God promised to him. He trusted God's faithfulness, even when God told him to sacrifice that son, the very answer to prayer and promise. And he's trusting God's chesed, God's steadfast love and kindness through and unto death. Oh, friends, God is faithful. God is faithful. Believer, trust. Trust in God's kindness. Trust in his faithfulness. Trust him. He is worthy of your trust. Consider the gifts that he's already given you as his kindness to you. Consider Christ. Believer, you have Christ. The most precious gift that God could ever give. As we often sing in our baptisms, though, I want to ask you, is Christ enough for you? Is he enough? Or do you put other demands on the Lord? Now, since this passage deals with finding a spouse, we're going to use that as an example. Searching for a spouse or even hoping to make your spouse a little better. Okay, that's what we're going to look at today. It consumes so much of our mental and emotional energy, doesn't it? I know a lot of my counseling time goes to that. So let me start with the marrieds. Are, if you're married, the Lord has been kind to you. He's been so kind to you. Praise God for your spouse. And I just want to say, don't, don't think that it's your job to make him or her a better person. That's, that's the Holy Spirit's work. Right? So rather, why not seek yourself to be the better spouse, the better person? That's who you have power to change. It's what you do, how you react. And as God works in you, brother or sister, 
And as you pray for your spouse, I can promise, not on my word, but on his word, that he will work in them too. Let it start with you. Now, are you single? All my single people, the Lord is kind to you. He's kind to you in, his, in your singleness. I want you to see singleness as a gift. A gift of time. And use it to focus on the Lord. 1 Corinthians 7, 32-35. If you're single, write that down. It says this, the single person is free from worldly concerns, able to devote themselves to the Lord. Now, is it good to pursue marriage? Yes, yes. Proverbs 18.22 says, He who finds a wife finds a, what is good and receives favor from the Lord. So yes, it's good to pursue marriage. But how? How? How, how do you do that? Should singles pray for signs like Abraham's servant? Well, I mean, his... His prayer is not necessarily a model for us, actually. But he prays. Just don't make conditions on God for how God should answer your prayers as if you're the one in charge. Certainly pray, but not necessarily for signs. Pray for, here's something you could pray for. Pray for wisdom and clarity in your decisions. Now, should you go with the first person who comes and puts a gold ring in your nose or bracelets on your arm? The Bible's clear that believers in Christ should only pursue another believer in Christ. No matter how kind, how handsome, how beautiful, if they don't trust Christ, they are not a candidate. For marriage. Now, I, I want to say that I'm, I am encouraged by some in our fellowship uh, who have waited patiently, who have not pursued that first person, uh, who have not pursued several. I, one of our members, Ali, has turned down several marriage offers presented by his mother as those women were not believers. And Ali is trusting in God's kindness to provide a believing wife in the right time. And we could pray for him in that, can't we, church? Like Abraham, it's better to wait and trust God for a believer you don't see than an unbeliever who's now and nearby. Better to wait and trust God for a believer you don't see than an unbeliever who's now and nearby. Now, lastly, I want to say one more thing to the single, single folks who want to get married. Some of you don't want to get married, and that is fine. Use your time well. But if you do want to get married, bring trusted people alongside you in this pursuit. Parents, pastors, believing friends, pray with them and listen to their counsels. They love you, and they want the best for you. 
Now, when you trust God's kindness and faithfulness to answer prayer, it's so much easier to willingly follow him. That's our second focus today, follow him willingly. And, and again, we're going to look back at the characters in chapter 24 as we do this. So, you know, you can flip back to the beginning. Abraham's willing and, and he is firmly committed to following the Lord's promise, which, you know, said to your offspring, I will give this land. So Isaac, he must be married for these offspring to continue to, to come. But his wife should not come from Canaan. How much easier would it have been to get a wife locally? Surely there were beautiful and kind women around. But Abraham understood what Paul quotes many centuries later, bad company corrupts good character. A pagan wife would have turned Isaac away from God's promises. I'll just talk to the parents for a moment. Uh, parents, we have a lot of kids here. And praise God for all these, these young ones. Like Abraham, I want, I want to call you parents to consider the importance of faith in your future son or daughter-in-law. It's more valuable than wealth or stability. Pray for and pursue faith in your future in-laws. When Chris and I were younger and our kids were younger, uh, we would pray for our children's spouses, even as we were changing their diapers. We knew that their future spouses were probably getting their diapers changed too. And so we were praying that God would bring them up in the ways of the Lord. And by God's grace, all our married kids, their spouses are strong in the Lord. Praise God for that. What can we learn now from the willingness of Abraham's servant? He also willingly obeyed. And I, I want to say that, that this servant, we're not given his name, but it might be uh, the Eliezer from Damascus that we heard about earlier. He models for us what it means to worship the Lord in our work. Worshiping the Lord in our work. You might be thinking, how do I worship God at work? Do you know where I work? Do you know that I don't work? Well, all of these characteristics you can apply right now, work or no work. First, integrity and ability. In verse 2, this servant had been put in charge of all that all that Abraham had. He had won Abraham's trust. He was a man of integrity and he had ability. Second thing, willingness and wisdom. <laughs> Take this oath before God. I mean, he willingly takes the oath and he he does wisely ask this question in verse 5. Did you notice that? It's a very good question. What if the woman is unwilling to come back with me to this land? 
he's not going to be condemned by another person's disobedience. That's wise. Willing and wise. Third, third, rely on God. As he arrives near the well, and we're in kind of 11 to 14 here, as he arrives near the well, he relies on God in prayer. And we were just talking about prayer and that it's not necessarily a model for us, but he prays to the right God. He prays with the right attitude. He prays with a right understanding that God is the director in this drama of life. He trusts God. And when God does answer his prayer, he rightly praises God in verses 26 and 27 for the success of his journey. The fourth thing, the fourth thing is honor for his employer. Honor for his employer. His prayer in verse 12 is that he would honor Abraham with success on this journey. He represents Abraham well when he speaks to Rebekah's family in verses 52 to 56. He gives them gifts. He receives their hospitality. And he, and he wisely asks the family not to detain him. Why? So that no one will change their mind in those 10 plus days. He wants to ensure the success of his journey for Abraham. And that his success today is not taken away tomorrow. Friends, do you work like Abraham's servant? Is it, could it be said of you? Which ways can you trust God more in your work of those four things? Working with integrity or to your full potential? Do you need to work better with a, a willing heart and with wisdom? Are you relying on God at work? Not only on your own abilities, but, but praying. Do you work and pray for success to honor your employer and not only yourself? could change the way you work. And you know what? I bet you'll get a better review when it comes time for an evaluation. Don't work for yourself. Work for God. Colossians 3, 22 to 23, 24 says this about those who work. He says, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord and not for human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. Friends, work unto the Lord. Now we also see this willingness to follow in Rebecca and her family. Uh, so what can we learn from them? 
Oh, one thing is in, in 50 to 51, uh, as, we, as you look there, after they hear the story of Abraham's servant, uh, Laban and Bethuel answered, this is from the Lord. You know, he's like, we, we can say nothing to you one way or another. Here's Rebecca. Take her and go. I'm, I'm challenged by their willingness to, to give their daughter, their sister, to follow this man so quickly after identifying that it was God's work. Now, they didn't just send her off because some guy gave her gold. They, they heard the testimony. They saw what happened. In, in verses 55 to 58, as we go on farther, Laban and Milcah, Rebecca's mother, they asked the servant for a, just a few more days before she leaves. And, it, and it, seems, it seems like it would be a reasonable request. I mean, just, just give us a couple more days with her, please. But when that servant presses that they not keep him longer, did you notice what they do? Very interesting. Something very unusual they ask Rebecca. 57. Then they said, let's call the young woman and ask her about it. So they called Rebecca and asked her, will you go with this man? And her reply answers the servant's question that he asked all the way back in verse 5 about willingness. What if the woman is unwilling to come back with me to this land? Right there in verse, was that 58? Rebecca responds, I will go. Rebecca willingly follows the Lord. She entrusts her life and her future to this man that she met just the day before. She may not know what the future holds, but she's trusting in the one who holds her future. Are there ways you can grow in trusting God's kindness like Abraham, like his servant, like Rebecca, in, in both the big and the small decisions of life with your future? Trusting God means re- releasing control. Releasing control. Now, it's, it's, not, it's not actually letting go of everything. Oh, okay, just take me. It's, it's letting go of the pride of being wise in your own eyes. It's holding on to the fear of the Lord, even when we can't see the end and where we might end up. It's trusting that God's ways, God's word is right and true, and he is faithful. Earlier in Genesis, Abraham seemed to trust his own thinking, his own thoughts, followed his own path, took him down to Egypt, remember? By the end, though, we see his trust in God's kindness grow. Abraham's more humble now. And and the more he sees God's kindness, the more he follows the Lord willingly. 
what we see here in Genesis 24 and, and part of 25 is that Abraham is trusting God and he's going to follow him to the end. This is our third focus. It, it, if, it's this trust in God's kindness, this willingness to follow the Lord, not only today, but to the end, that ultimately will reveal our faith. In our, in our statement of faith, statement number 13 says, we believe that genuine believers are only those who endure to the end. And chapter 25, verses 7 to 10, gives us a picture of Abraham. He, he's lived 175 years old. And then in verse 8, Abraham breathed his last died at a good old age, an old man, and full of years, and he was gathered to his people. You know, just back in Genesis 17, 19, verse 17, 19, God promised Abraham that his covenant blessing would be through Isaac, saying, your wife Sarah will bear you a son, you shall call him Isaac, and I will bless him I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. But, you know, here's Abraham. He's got, he's got six more sons by Keturah and, and another by Hagar. But Abraham trusts the promise. I don't know. The scripture doesn't really tell us here, but I imagine it must have been painful to send away his sons to the east. Maybe even like it was when he did that with Ishmael. You remember how painful that was for him to send Ishmael away. But so that Isaac would have or be the uncontested heir that no one else could take it away from him so that Abraham could give him everything he owned, according to verses 5 and 6 here in verse 25, or chapter 25, Abraham follows God's promise to the end. Now, as we, as we reflect on all of Abraham's life, we know he, he, he was not a righteous man in himself, he feared death and he feared man back in chapter 12. He lied about Sarah being his wife in chapters 12 and 20. He listened to Sarah's human solution uh, to their infertility promise back in chapter 16. He was reluctant to send Ishmael away in chapter 21. Abraham was a righteous man because God, God credited him with righteousness. His faith was growing through every challenge, through every test that the Lord put before him. And, and through all these ups and downs that we see in Abraham's life, it's, it's what Paul says later in Romans, Romans chapter 4, when, when he says, Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith, 
and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he promised. Friends, it's the same for you who believe. You who believe have been credited righteousness. It's not from yourself. And you are growing in what it means then to trust God's kindness and follow him willingly in the path that he has marked out for you. And that path may be different than for her or for him. I want you to recognize, believer, that faith grows not in a straight line, always upwardly ascending No, like Abraham, sometimes we have setbacks. Sometimes we have great leaps of faith. For those who truly know the Lord, they will continue in him. I love how Colossians says it in Colossians chapter 2, verse 6. It says, so then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. We do so so not, not in our own strength, but in the strength that God provides, as, as Philippians uh, says. Philippians, just a, a, one book over, chapter 2, in verse 12, it says, Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will, to desire, and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. And that's, that's where our statement Statement number 13 in our statement of faith continues concerning that very fact. It says their persevering attachment to Christ, to Christ, is the grand mark which distinguishes them from those who falsely profess faith in Christ. Christians may fall into sin, yet they shall be renewed again to repentance and be kept by the power of God through faith for salvation. John Bunyan testified to that perseverance, that perseverance is God's power working together with our faith, the faith that God gives. Bunyan quotes 1 Peter 1.5 when he says, perseverance is not an accident in Christianity or a thing performed by a human's hard work, They that are saved are kept by the power of God through faith until the coming salvation. It's why some people have said that it's as much the perseverance of God for his saints as it is for the perseverance of his saints. Because God is the one who preserves us. Believer in Jesus, Christ did not die for you to lose the very gift that he gave you. If he has revealed himself to you 
and you truly know him, he will preserve you to the end. And that is great encouragement for those of faith. Now, why is God committed to preserving his chosen ones, his church? Why would he, why would he do that? Because the church is the bride of Christ. The church is the bride of Christ. Just as God provided a bride for Isaac, so he has provided a bride for his son. And church, you are part of that bride. John the Baptist first called Jesus the bridegroom uh, who had come for his bride. And later in Ephesians 5, in his instructions to husbands, Paul calls them to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The bride of Christ is the church for which he died. Are you connected to this bride? Are you part of the bride? Are you part of those for whom Christ has died? If you're not sure about that, if you can't give a resounding yes and amen, then like Genesis 24, the call to you is to trust God's kindness, chesed, steadfast love, and follow him willingly. The, the problem is we can't do that on our own. We, we, we want to go our own way. We want to trust our own decisions. The Bible calls this self-reliance, sin. And, and, and our sin is what separates us from God. It's what Romans 2, 4, or it's what Romans 6, 23 says, the wages of sin is death. But Romans 2, 4 says God's kindness, his hesed, leads us to repentance. He leads us to repentance. God graciously came in the person of Jesus Christ to pay the penalty of sin. And it's his death on the cross where he became sin and a sin offering for us so that our debt of sin could be paid and he could then give us his righteousness. He could credit righteousness to us just like Abraham. Friend, through faith in Christ, you can be saved. You can be saved. You can be included in his church. You can be a part of the bride of Christ. Will you trust his kindness and willingly follow him today? Friends, his promise, not my promise, his promise is to save completely those who come to him by faith and, and repentance. Philippians 1.6, it says, He who began a good work in you, who began a good work in you, will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. He'll do it. What I mean is this, church. Abraham... Abraham's servant would not have been successful if he had failed to bring Rebekah home to Isaac. You think about that? 
Abraham's servant would not have been successful if he failed to bring Rebekah home. In the same way, Christ saves us as his bride and he will bring us all the way home. That's the promise. That's the promise in Revelation. Revelation chapter 21, where it's John, the, uh, the writer of, of the Revelation, recalls in his vision in chapter 21, verses 2 to 4, he says, And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look! God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things or the former things have passed away. You know, Tim Keller died with that hope. He, he loved to quote John Owen who said, we are never nearer to Christ than when we find ourselves lost in holy amazement at his unspeakable love. Keller's faith is sight. He sees what we yet hope in. He is in the presence of Christ, more aware, more amazed than ever before of God's unspeakable love. And this is our hope too, church. The hope that we all who trust in God's kindness and willingly follow him to the end also have. Let's pray. Our Father, uh, you have in holy amazement done what no person could ever dream of doing. You came on a rescue mission for your bride. You came to save completely those who would put their trust in you. Lord, I pray that as we think about the life of Abraham, that we would be encouraged in his example and that we, like him, would believe your word, your promise. And we would trust your chesed kindness to us. Oh Lord, may we willingly follow you to the end. I do pray for any who's here who does not know this love, that they could come to know that love even today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.